welcome to Stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in ER, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in to Stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat. Shocking traumas and treatments, and I am your host Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome back to this week's episode. It is the part two of the Michael Swango story. Michael Swango seemed to have a limitless amount of energy. At the time he was going to medical school, he was also working an hour away at American Ambulance. During his first year, he would work up to twenty-four hour shifts and spend the day at school with a pager running out of the classroom or clinical setting if he was called to a scene. He had clinical hours to meet, and he had to complete the rigors of the homework. Medical school is grueling as it is without working, let alone having a full-time job an hour away. And he wasn't doing very well at work either. He exhibited bursts of anger as a paramedic. His fellow students saw how poorly he was doing, but somehow he was able to fool his professors with his charm and lies. He applied for a neurosurgery internship and he got a glowing letter of recommendation from a Dr. Weikesser, the neurosurgeon that had been his mentor, a neurosurgeon that almost never gave a glowing recommendation. What is even more remarkable is that Swango got into one of the most prestigious neurosurgery internships in the U.S. at that time. This was the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Swango's classmates were stunned. They knew what kind of person he was and how undeserving of the internship. Once Swango secured this internship, he didn't even try to work hard at medical school anymore. All he had to do was complete an eight-week rotation in OBGYN in order to graduate. The first week of the rotation was to observe surgeries such as C-sections and hysterectomies. He didn't show up. All exams at this point were conducted orally. He missed the majority of them. The chief resident of OBGYN was Dr. O'Connor, and she couldn't believe he had disregarded the final internship. She couldn't get in contact with Swango, so she was directed to try getting a hold of him at American Ambulance. When she contacted them, she was told that he had been restricted from having any direct contact with patients, but she never found out why. O'Connor finally met with him at the hospital and asked him to do a full verbal assessment on a patient, which included a physical. It's called an H&P, History and Physical, and almost immediately handed over a three-page report. It's impossible to do a thorough exam and then immediately submit a report. O'Connor visited the patient and asked about the assessment that was done by Swango. The woman said that she barely spoke to him. He didn't perform an exam. He didn't even touch her. He clearly submitted a false and fabricated document. O'Connor took her concerns to the OBGYN faculty, who was disgusted by Swango's behavior, and that he posed a risk to patients' health and well-being. Swango was to be called to a hearing with the Student Progress Committee. When Swango found out that he was going to fail and not graduate, he was irate. However, he appeared calm and cool and collected on the outside. He hired a lawyer. Now, here's a part of the story where the doctor's club and corporate cover-up starts. When I refer to doctor's club, it may be obvious, but I've experienced myself. The doctors have this unspoken or spoken behind closed doors fraternity, so to speak, where they protect each other. It's during this part of the research that I started yelling at my computer because 
I have experienced this in real life. I have seen doctors rally around each other and get back by administration when they clearly did something morally and ethically wrong. Hint, there will be a hardcore ER coming up after this miniseries to talk about this, so stay tuned. Okay, back to the story. After Swango hired a lawyer, the administrators freaked out because they thought he might sue the school. Dr. Waycaser, the neurosurgery professor that wrote the glowing letter of recommendation, defended him. He called him an outstanding student and became so worked out about it that he burst into tears, pleading his case. <laughs> Please. A group of students who knew Swango for the incompetent student that he was put together a letter recommending his dismissal. This is a big deal because the doctor's club is practically a class itself that is taught early in med school. To sum up the letter, they stated that he was incompetent. He hadn't progressed through the years. He showed no interest in patients. He had a resentful attitude towards education. He was not capable to function as an intern and that they would never want him to be their or their family's doctor. They knew Swangle well because they had worked side by side with this guy for three years. The student progress committee recommend expelling him. When Dr. O'Connor went to get the false report that Swango had written, she couldn't find it anywhere. In fact, all of Swango's reports were missing. O'Connor reported this to the committee, as well as Swango's subpar performance, false plagiarized reports, and his frequent absences. Swango represented himself in front of the committee, acting humble and charming. He, of course, denied everything. He said his absences were because he had to pay for medical school, and was full sole supporter of his mother and two brothers after his father's death. This, of course, was all a lie, except for his father did die, but his mother worked and helped him pay for his education. His older brother had completed school and lived on his own, and his younger brother was fully supported by his mother. Most of the committee were not buying his excuses, except a physician on the committee by the name of Dr. Murphy. And he stated this, quote, Your whole class is full of goof-offs and jerks. Why pick on him? End of quote. At the end of the hearing, eight out of nine voted to expel Swango, except Dr. Murphy. The final outcome was that Swango would not be allowed to graduate with his class, but he wouldn't be expelled or asked to withdraw, and he would have to repeat the OBGYN rotation. His name was not called. They had planned a celebration meal, and he didn't show up. His mother was devastated. Her golden boy sheen was starting to dull. Having almost been kicked out of med school, Swango stepped it up and became the perfect student. He completed all required components of the rotation. The dean, Richard Moy, writes a dean's letter for all graduating students. He wrote in Swangle's letter that he did not graduate with his class, that he had failed the final rotation, had to repeat it, and there were real concerns about his professional conduct. He wanted to say more, but the school wouldn't let him because they were afraid of getting sued. If only Swango could have been stopped there. If only the university had the balls to nip this in the bud. Regardless of all of this, Swango was offered a residency at the prestigious Ohio State University in neurosurgery. Somehow Swango secured this residency. To begin with, 60 doctors and med students applied. Only 12 were invited for an interview, and he was the only student that got the position. How could this possibly happen? How did his bad behavior not follow him? He was a master manipulator, and he seemed to be able to charm the powers that be. He peppered his stories with lies and poured on the sob story and false heroics. He knew how to press the empathy button on people, and most of them bought it. And he knew how to deflect away from his glaringly bad behavior. Swango graduated from SIU April 12, 1983, 
Around the time that he graduated, he was fired from American Ambulance for his violent outbursts and gross negligence in his care of a patient. He offered no explanation and didn't even seem to care. He got hired almost immediately by an ambulance service in Adams County Corps in Quincy. By July 1st, 1983, Swango began his residency. His first rotation was in the ER. Dr. Ronald Ferguson was in charge of Swango's internship from October to November. He wanted to fail Swango because he felt he was incompetent to practice. Here's what Ferguson observed. He was cold and rude and short with the patients. His H&Ps were subpar. He did not appear to be dedicated to the rigors of internship. Now get this. He talked regularly on the floor to anyone who would listen, patients, family, staff, about his fascination with Nazis and the Holocaust. Staff and patients thought he was weird and creepy. When Swango was criticized for his inappropriate behavior in clinical practice, he would drop to the floor and do rigorous push-ups in the hallways or the nurse's station or patient's room. And he was told to stop, but he wouldn't. Dr. Ferguson reported these concerns to Dr. Hunt, the director of neurosurgery. It was only then that he looked a little deeper into this applicant. At this point, he read the dean's letter and followed up with SIU. Dr. Hunt told Swangle that he was going to get a failing grade, but he recommended that he appeal Ferguson's evaluation to the Residency Review Committee. Swango did just that. In the meantime, Swango continued on with his rotation. His behaviors did not change. In fact, they escalated. He was about to meet his first victim, at least the first victim that could be traced to him. The patient's name was Ruth Barrick. She was on the ninth floor of the Rhodes Surgical Unit in room 968. Ruth Barrick was an elderly woman who had been admitted to the hospital 10 days earlier with a cerebral hematoma, which is a bleed on the brain, that she acquired after a fall. Her condition was serious, but not life-threatening. Ruth Barrick went into respiratory arrest and nearly died on January 31st, just after Swango's appeal of his negative evaluation was rejected. That morning, Nurse Deborah Kennedy had helped Mrs. Barrick with her breakfast, and she was alert and oriented. At 9.45, Swango went into Barrick's room to check on her. Doctor's rounds were done at 6.30, so there was no reason for him to be there. At approximately 10.05, Kennedy returned to Mrs. Barrick's room to check on her. She was in acute respiratory failure. Her skin was blue. Kennedy called a code, and Swango was the first to arrive. He just stood there while the other doctors did CPR. It took 45 minutes to resuscitate her. At 8 o'clock on February 6th, a nurse by the name of Ann Ritchie was caring for Mrs. Ruth Barrick and noticed that her CVP line had low pressure. This line is placed in a large vessel, like a jugular, and usually only doctors or advanced practice nurses can care for it. Seeing that the pressure was low, she called the doctor to take a look at it. Swango arrived and drew the curtains around his patient's bed, which is unusual. There would really be no reason to draw the curtains around. Swango was still in there 10 minutes later, an unusually long time. Richie looked in on Swango and saw he was hovering over the patient's chest using two to three syringes on the line. And that didn't make any sense either. Five minutes later, Swango left the room. Richie checked in on her patient, and she was blue and not breathing. So she started CPR and frantically yelled out, calling a code blue. When she looked up, she saw Swango just standing there, watching with a smirk on his face. And he commented to Richie, who was doing mouth-to-mouth at the time, 
That's so disgusting. Finally, other doctors and nurses arrived and continued with CPR. Their efforts were futile. Ruth Barrett could not be resuscitated. Swango filled out the death certificate, citing the cause of death as a stroke. Richie was both scared and angry. She knew in her gut that Swango was responsible for Barrick's death. That very afternoon, Richie responded to another urgent call to a patient's room. The charge nurse, Amy Moore, was tending to another patient who was in respiratory distress. When Richie hurried into the room, she saw Swango just standing there. Swango seemed to be trying to get her out of the room, but she refused. Nurse Moore was able to get the woman stable into a floor that could manage the sudden and dire change in her condition. Richie reported the incident concerning Ruth Barrick to Amy Moore as per hospital protocol. She had to tell her superior nurse about her suspicions. Swango's trail of destruction was just beginning. That evening, on the very same day, Swango visited 69-year-old Rena Cooper on rounds. She was recovering from back surgery that she had had just that morning. She shared room 900 with a 59-year-old woman by the name of Ivonia Utz. Mrs. Utz was in the hospital to have treatment for a brain tumor. They had been roommates for almost two weeks and had become friends. The doctors did their rounds that day at around 7 p.m. At around 9.15 p.m., student nurse Carolyn Tyrell Beery went into room 900. She went in there because Mrs. Cooper had called for some pain medication. When she arrived in the room, she saw Swango. Apparently, he had answered the call. Carolyn saw Swango injecting something into Mrs. Cooper's IV line, and she thought it was unusual. But she left the room because it seemed that he was helping Mrs. Cooper. Two minutes later, Carolyn heard Mrs. Utz crying out for help for her roommate. Mrs. Cooper was violently shaking the bed rails, and she was turning blue. Carolyn grabbed another nurse and called a code blue. Doctors Freeman and Brackle arrived right away, but Swango, who had just been in the room, was nowhere in sight. Dr. Freeman took over the code. He was told by Carolyn Beery that Swango had just been in there. Freeman was confused because rounds had been done hours before. She told him that Swango had injected something into Mrs. Cooper's IV line. Freeman thought that Beery must have been confused because that was a nurse's responsibility. And it's true. Most situations where medication is given or injected into the line, it's done strictly by nurses, unless it is in an emergency situation like this. As this was all going on, Mrs. Utz started to shout out what happened to her, and this is what she told them. Quote, a doctor with blonde hair did something to Mrs. Cooper, the blonde-haired doctor. End of quote. She further said that he had come into the room and wrapped something yellow around her arm, a tourniquet, and injected her with a syringe and ran out of the room. She was moved to a private room because they thought that she was too disruptive. Mrs. Utz was largely ignored due to the urgency of the code. The other doctor that responded to the code, Dr. Brackle, reported later that Mrs. Cooper was, quote, not breathing. She was unconscious and had no movement to any stimulus, even deep pain. She wasn't dead and her vitals were stable, but she was completely paralyzed and had total flaccicity, which means no reflexes. She didn't even flinch when she was intubated, which is a very uncomfortable and painful procedure. Meanwhile, a nurse's aide, Joe Risley, went to check on the other patients to make sure they were all right in the midst of the chaos. He saw Swango leave room 966. 
Risley was suspicious because there was absolutely no reason for him to be in that room. Risley reported that Swango creeped him out because, quote, he had a goofy look on his face. It's an old cliche, like a kid with his fingers in the cookie jar. I mean, it was basically just a shit-eating grin. End of quote. Risley went into the bathroom in the room, and on the sink there was an 18-gauge needle and a 10cc syringe with the plunger depressed. Risley told the charge nurse, Lily Jordan, what she had seen and found. She took the syringe, wrapped it up, and put it under the bathroom sink. And she said to Risley, quote, you're my witness, end of quote. My suspicion is that he injected Mrs. Cooper with a strong muscle relaxant used in general anesthesia called succinicholine. It causes short-term paralysis and works within 30 seconds. It also helps with tracheal intubation. It is injected into an IV line. And I think that's why she had a tourniquet on when she was injected. Because he could inject it, stop the flow, pass the tourniquet, and then he would be able to release it. And then get out of the room, ensuring that he could get away. And then within 30 seconds, it would start to work. The drug does not cause any unconsciousness or lack of sensation. Without any other drug, you'd be virtually locked in. Be able to see be able to think, be able to hear all your senses, but she couldn't move or say a thing. And you can't protect your airway or breathe on your own. Now, this is just me speculating, but it sounds like it could be something like that. Back to Rena Cooper. Within 15 minutes, she was breathing on her own and the paralysis was lifting. Mrs. Cooper indicated to a nurse that she wanted a paper and a pen to convey something as she was unable to speak because she was still intubated. And this is what she wrote on the piece of paper. Quote, he put something in my IV. Someone gave me some med in my IV and paralyzed all of me, lungs, heart, speech. End of quote. She was moved to the ICU. When she was able to speak, Dr. Freeman asked what had happened. And she restated that a blonde haired person had injected something into her IV. She had seen the syringe in their hand, but she never got a clear look at their face. As soon as he gave her the injection, she felt a blackness spread throughout her body, beginning with the left arm, where the IV was inserted, then spreading left to right of her body. She was very scared because when she tried to speak, she couldn't. She started to rattle her bed rails to get attention drawn to her. Freeman spoke to the student nurse, Beery, about what had happened, and she reported the same witnessed event. Freeman confronted Swango, and of course he denied everything. The nursing staff was really shaken up. The supervisor, Nurse Black, asked Beery and Jordan to document everything. The document was put into a sealed envelope and left on the desk of the director of surgical nursing. Black called the charge nurse that was on duty, Amy Moore, at home. And she was even more disturbed because she knew of Beric's death that day and how Swango had been involved in that one too. She asked Nurse Jordan to retrieve the hidden syringe and put it in her briefcase that was in her office. Moore was already very concerned about the increasing number of codes and deaths occurring on the ninth floor. This is a surgical floor. Most people don't die on a surgical floor. You know, this is not a surgery that had them go into an ICU. It's more like things of broken legs or appendix and, um, you know, things like that. Moore was already very concerned by the increasing number of codes and deaths occurring on the ninth floor over the last couple of weeks, and she was connecting Swango to all of them. Here's a timeline. On January 14th, after Swango met with Dr. Hunt, after he failed his evaluation, 
Patient Cynthia Ann McGee, a healthy young gymnast, had been found dead in room 901. On January 20th, 21-year-old Richard DeLong was found dead in room 964. Dr. Freeman was the physician that had responded to the code, and he was shocked by the unforeseen death of an otherwise healthy young man. On January 24th, 43-year-old Ryan Walter also died unexpectedly after he was found in respiratory distress. Swango had been present on the night floor for all these deaths, and this was not going unnoticed. Nurse Amy Moore took her concerns to the highest-ranking nurse at Ohio State, the Associate Executive Director of Nursing, Jan Dixon. Amy Moore was beside herself. She shakily told Dixon everything. Dixon fully believed the credible nurse and was convinced that something very wrong was going on on the ninth floor and that Swango was at the center of it all. She was so concerned that she thought of calling the police. Now, this next part may get a little confusing, but I'm going to do my very best to keep things in order. I think it's all very relevant to the story. First, Jan Dixon got in contact with Dr. Joseph Goodman, a professor of neurosurgery and the surgeon who had operated on Rena Cooper's spine. Then she contacted the hospital's top administrator, executive director, Donald Cramp. Cramp took the reports of the events very seriously, so he called the university's vice president of health services, who was also the dean of the College of Medicine, Dr. Manuel Zagurnis. A meeting was scheduled for 6 p.m. that evening. Manuel Sigurnis is a very powerful person. Manuel Sigurnis was a very powerful person. He was in the pockets of politicians and some very wealthy contributors to the university. He was a fun-raising guru. He had raised $230 million in 1984. His concerns were getting money and putting out fires that would prevent the money from coming in. In short, this was likely going to be made to go away. Dixon asked the student nurse Beery and nurses Moore and Jordan to attend the meeting and read their documentation on what they witnessed. Moore brought the syringe that Risley had found. They gave their evidence to Dr. Goodman. Now, he made them nervous because he was an arrogant surgeon with a god complex who looked down upon nurses. After giving their testimonies, he dismissed them without asking further questions or direction on what to do next. Goodman wrote this all off as gossip contrived by nurses. He was very angry that Swango was being picked on and vicious lies were being spread about him. He felt the nurses were out of control. Of course. He also stated that he couldn't find anything unusual or suspicious, especially about a used syringe found in a hospital sink. Goodman spoke to Swango, who denied everything. Goodman felt that because Swango appeared calm and cool and collected, he couldn't possibly be guilty. Dr. Carey, chief of surgery, also asked Swango about the incident report that was being filed against him. Carey didn't ask him anything about injecting Mrs. Cooper with medication into her IV. This is what Swango told him. He said that he had gone into Mrs. Cooper's room because she said her feet were cold and asked him to get her slippers for her. He said that he got the slippers for her, but this is all he did. He didn't touch her IV line. What a crock. I can't believe anyone would believe this crap. After his testimony, Swango was asked to wait outside. The panel discussed the risk of being sued by Swango. They called one of the hospital lawyers and asked him to attend a meeting to discuss the case further. He felt a lawsuit by Swango would threaten Ohio State with legal liability and could open the doors for other patients to sue. Ohio State was a state-funded and taxpayer-supported institution and self-insured. A lawsuit could have huge impact on the university and hospital finances. It would also draw public attention, opening them up to public scrutiny. The meeting took place at 6.30. 
Zagurnis, the university's vice president, like I said, and the dean of College of Medicine, did not attend. Nor did the hospital's medical director, Michael Whitcomb. You would think that it was important for them to attend. Those that did attend were Jan Dixon and doctors Goodman, Carey, and Hunt, and hospital administrators Cramp and Boyanowski, and Alphonse Ciccioni, the lawyer. Dixon was concerned about what was going to happen because she felt the first instincts of the doctor's club was to protect Swango. She had seen it happen before. Dixon presented all of the evidence. The doctors dismissed all of her accusations and showed concern only for Swango's rights. Dixon stated that she thought this matter should be taken to the police, that it should not be left to the hospital to investigate because this was a serious criminal matter. The lawyer, Ciccioni, disagreed and stated that there was no evidence that any crime had been committed. He recommended that a discreet investigation be conducted by the doctors. Dixon and the hospital administrators, Boyanowski and Cramp, thought this would be a huge mistake. Dixon was ordered not to question the nurses any further, as it would keep the vicious rumor train going. Dr. Goodman would take charge of the investigation, <laughs> cover up, and they would reconvene the upcoming Saturday. After the meeting was over, Swango was asked to go back in the room. Dr. Carey suggested that Swango go home for a few days, and he took it in stride. Dixon was very upset after the meeting. She wanted to discuss this with Desernus, but she couldn't reach him. She spoke with the Assistant Attorney General, Holder, but he agreed with Ciccioni. The next day, Dixon met with Zagurnus. She told him everything, and he listened but offered no comment or direction. On February 9th, Goodman started his investigation, if that's what you want to call it. And this is how it went. He interviewed Mrs. Cooper, and he looked over her blood tests. He reviewed the files of seven people who had died since Swango started the rotation. He did not interview the physicians Freeman and Brackle, who attended Mrs. Cooper's code. He didn't interview any of the nurses who witnessed the events. He did not interview the orderly who found the syringe, nor did he ask for it. He did not interview Mrs. Cooper's roommate, Mrs. Utz. There were no autopsies done or any physical tests ordered. There was no toxicology or anesthesia consults to see if there would be any explanation. So I, I probably should have said what he did not investigate it as opposed to what he did investigate. He summarized his interview with Mrs. Cooper as, quote, Someone was standing by the bed and injected something into the IV, who was blonde, short, and unable to see their face, who was wearing a yellow pharmacy jacket, end of quote. He also stated that Cooper was spreading lies and upsetting other patients, but the only lies that were being spoken came out of Goodman's mouth. Goodman had Mrs. Cooper moved into a private room to shut her up. Can you imagine how scared she must have been knowing that Swango was lingering around? She was in a private room where, unless there was a nurse in there all the time, she couldn't be protected from him, and her concerns were being dismissed. The only nurse that was allowed to have any contact with her was Amy Moore. The people who attended the Saturday morning meeting were Assistant Attorney General Holder, the Dean, Sigurnus, the Hospital Medical Director, Michael Whitcomb, the administrators, Cramp and Boyanowski. Dixon asked that the university president and vice president attend, and Sigurna said no, he didn't see the need for it. Seriously. An intern accused of murdering seven patients, and the university's president and vice president weren't necessary? Dixon was shocked and mortified with the meeting and its outcome. 
Dr. Goodman was even more adamant that there was an unfair and unfounded witch hunt against Swango. That his investigation eliminated any possibility that Swango was guilty of doing any wrong. He lied and said Mrs. Cooper reported that her assailant was a female and not a nurse or doctor, and the person wore a yellow jacket. So, you know, blame this all on the pharmacy. Mrs. Cooper reported none of this. She was also a very intelligent, bright, and alert woman. As for the deaths of the seven patients, and Goodman said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, yeah, that's a high number, but they'd all been extremely ill and their deaths were easily explained, which is completely untrue. Most of the people were healthy and expected to have a full recovery. And as for Swangle being present, well, he was an intern after all. He was expected to be there. And for Mrs. Cooper's blood tests, none were found in her medical file. These were either never done, lost, or removed. That was it. Goodman was finished. Case closed. Dixon was disgusted. She asked about all the testimony that she had provided, in particular what student nurse Beery witnessed. Goodman said, quote, what does a student nurse know? End of quote. And most of the men around the table chuckled. Swangle's prior behavior was discussed, but the lawyer Ciccioni said that it had no bearing on the charges at hand. The meeting lasted three hours. The final result? Sigurnus ordered that Swangle be allowed to continue on his internship and that the only stipulation was that he be watched closely. Swangle was exonerated. Jan Dixon was stunned. The student nurse, Carolyn Beery, was discredited. And Mrs. Cooper was deemed as a, a confused, fragile old lady. Sigurnus warned that there should be no further investigation into this matter. And Dixon was especially warned about this. The nurses were worried. Now that Swango was back working at the hospital, they were afraid that he would try to kill them. He resumed his rotation on the ninth floor. On the same day that he was exonerated, 72-year-old Charlotte Warner, who had had a routine splenectomy, or spleen removal, was found dead on the floor of her bathroom. Dr. Cooperman, who had seen Mrs. Warner earlier that day, was satisfied with her condition, and she had been doing well. Cooperman was quite upset. The autopsy showed that Mrs. Warner was full of blood clots throughout her organs. He stated the following, quote, Basically what happened is she suffered massive and unexplained blood clots, into her arteries and her heart, in the vessels to the intestine, in the vessels to her kidneys, to her liver, and to her lungs. And I could never understand why this thing would happen to someone who had undergone a straightforward surgical procedure five days earlier and was walking around having no problems. End of quote. There is a poison called ricin that causes massive blood clotting throughout the body. This poison would be found among other caches of poison in Swango's private rooms in the future. Ricin is also the poison that killed the Bulgarian writer that Swangle wrote a school report on. The same month that Charlotte Warner was found dead, Evelyn Perini, another surgical patient, was found bleeding out internally, and it was coming out of every orifice of her body, including her eyes. This is a quote by attending physician Dr. Birkin. Her coagulation rate was off the charts, like she had been bitten by a cobra. End of quote. Warfarin, also known as Coumadin, is an anticoagulant, a blood thinner and that is a main ingredient in rat poison. It is readily available in the hospitals for doctors or nurses to get, and it can be easily bought in hardware stores. This anticoagulant, when given in large doses, causes massive internal bleeding. 
Rat poison would also be found in abundance in Swango's homes. On the afternoon of February 20th, 22-year-old Mary Popko died unexpectedly. Her mother, Anna Mae, was visiting her daughter after she had undergone intestinal surgery. Anna Mae was sitting with her daughter when Dr. Swango entered the room and told her that she had to leave because he had to give Mary an injection. Anna Mae refused to go. She said she wanted to stay and hold her daughter's hand. Swango persisted, and Anna Mae reluctantly agreed to leave the room. Later, Swango asked Anna Mae to speak with him in a small conference room. He leaned back in his chair, put his feet on the table, looked her in the eyes, and said, quote, She's dead now. You can go see her. End of quote. Mary Popko had died. Anna May recalls that Swango was quite cheery. Quote, it seemed like it had lifted his ego or something. He just seemed so happy. End of quote. Swango successfully completed his general surgery rotation and was to start a pediatrics rotation at the Children's Hospital. He had left a trail of death behind him, completely unscathed. This is where I'm going to end today. It's incredible to me that Swango got away with all of this. And I think the hospital, the university, the administrators, the the doctors are culpable in these deaths. They turned a blind eye. They covered up. They had willful ignorance and arrogance. If this guy had been stopped at the graduating level, even early on, I suspect no more of these deaths may have taken place. It's, it's incredible. So wait till you see what happens next. If this didn't already make you a little crazy, the next episode will. I'm actually recording today on November the 29th, which is the day after American Thanksgiving. So I think it's time for me to give thanks. Thank you for the following iTunes reviews. From Donna TH. L-T-C-C-R-R-U. I'd try to pronounce that, but I don't think I'd get it right. Litklulu. Jen M. 0407. And I'm going to try to pronounce this one as well. Sowak Manow. S-U-A-K-M-N-O-W. The interesting thing about this last review, this person wrote, by the way, Erica sounds hot. Is she? <laughs> You'll have to ask Erica. She's like my little sister. I don't think of her that way. But she is cute. She is cute. Okay, so thank you for those reviews. And if you've got time, if you can pop on over to iTunes and rate and review what you actually feel. And if you are willing, and if you want, send me an email. Tell me what you think of today's episode. And head over to the Facebook page if you're not already a member. You should be because it, is, because it is the best damn Facebook group in the world. Everybody on there is amazing. And if you join, you can get on there, make some funny posts, and maybe get on the placebo effect. So thank all of you guys. Also, I want to give a special thanks to those who support me on Patreon. And if you feel that you can give any monetary support, head on over to Patreon, stat. Shocking traumas and treatments. But all support is greatly appreciated by me. So thank you to everyone. So remember to take care of each other, take care of yourself, love each other, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace.
One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch it back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.